0: And I think so many of our digital practices and routines are exactly that, exactly as you said, we are searching for affirmation. We are searching for meaning and sense of accomplishment. And as I write in the book, in the end of the day, we're, we're looking for connection with other people. Mm-hmm. Like we, we want to belong and we want to experience communion, But so often our technologies, and I think so many of us feel it, it doesn't get us all the way there. It doesn't get us the communion we're actually searching for with other people and certainly not with God.
1: It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we are having another one of our Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with scholar and author Felicia Wu Song. Have you ever felt that the technology in your life is not serving you, but you are serving it? I mean, do you feel free or fettered? How is your technology shaping you? And how can we counter this soft tyranny of the digital age that we're living in? What do we do? Where do we go? Where can we even find answers about this stuff? And, and from a Christian perspective, no less, where do we go? These are difficult questions, but they are not impossible to answer. Today, we want to welcome Felicia Wu-Song to the show. She is a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies. That sounds like fun. Currently serving as professor of sociology at Westmont College and Santa Barbara, California. And her publications include Virtual Communities, Bowling Alone, online together, and articles in such scholarly journals as Gender and Society, and Information, Communication, and Society. We discuss her most recent book, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. It's it's a book that digs down deep into the soft tyranny of our technology and how technology is actually shaping us spiritually. And rather than just stay in the theoretical, though, or in the abstract, although we we, we do talk about that, she gives us some ideas to try to find freedom from our technological fetters. But before we do that, we want to thank you for listening to our show. Because we couldn't do this without you. it's It's been incredible to see what God has done in such a short amount of time. And that includes you right now listening to this show. We couldn't do this without you. You are the heroes in our Hall of Fame. You provide the means to keep us going. And on behalf of our entire team, thank you. But if you want to see this grow further and you want to grow further, then we need your help. First of all, you can share this with others. If you haven't subscribed yet, now is the time and leave a review so that it puts it out there to more people. The more you rate, the more difference it makes. And together, we want to make sure that we are watering faith around the world so that others can then water their world. And if you would like to partner with us, then please go to apolloswatered.org and click the support us button and simply select the amount that works for you. And stay tuned afterwards as I wrap things up with some specific things we can do to walk in freedom in our digitally dominated worlds. Happy listening. Alicia Wu Song, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Okay, here we go. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Yes, I am. The mountains or the beach? Mountains. Why?
0: Trees. (laughs) (laughs) Mountains with trees, I should say.
1: (laughs) Mountains with trees.
0: Yes, yes. Shade. Not like not open exposed just lots of shady green foliage moss lots of moss
1: oh i i really like that answer my wife would say beach but i like your answer a whole lot better and you mentioned this in your book i'm guessing we're closer to the same age so you grew up in the 80s right yes sir okay here we go she-ra or thundercats
0: Oh, you know, I don't have a lot of Thundercats literacy, I confess. Um, okay. I did watch a fair bit of She-Ra, though, um, <laughs> coming home from school. I can still see the the opening, you know, the opening scene. Um, it's all very embarrassing now that it's all coming <laughs> to my head. But I guess She-Ra, just because I don't. Think I ever really watched Thundercats.
1: What was your biggest cartoon? This isn't one of the questions, but what was your biggest cartoon as a kid?
0: Ooh, um, watched a lot of Looney Tunes, just like Uh, over and over again. Um, and you know, and those were all ancient repeats, but you know, Inspector Gadget, it it was all it was all there. You know, it's because there was not a lot of choice. It was more like when right. would your parents let you watch? And then you just watched whatever happened to be on TV at that time. So, well,
1: that's how I became a fan of Grizzly Adams. <laughs> there wasn't anything else on. That's all there is. <laughs> all there exactly. Was. exactly. Okay. Fa- favorite snack of choice? Ooh, that's
0: hard. Um, lots of favorite snacks. Um, so my go-to snack when I'm going on an airplane is Pringles, mm. sour cream, and onion.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: Yeah. Always, always. Oh,
1: that's good. I like that. All right, here we go. Question four. If you were a book, what book would you be and why? And you can't say the Bible. <laughs>
0: um, gosh, if I was a book
1: and you can't be one of your own books either <laughs> <laughs>
0: um okay so um there's this book a kid's book I, i'd definitely be a, a kid's book for sure and there's this book that we used to read for our kids called Stregonona, which Striganona. is about this um uh, well i won't go into the whole details, but there's this kind of hapless character in it who um, uses magic um in a hapless way and ends up flooding the entire town with pasta um and it's completely ridiculous but redemptive at the end because um, his um, he's he's kind of like a, a farm boy right who the okay. person who he serves is the one that kind of helps him out of um, these, this problem because everyone in town's very upset with him. Um, cause he's flooded the whole town with pasta. Um, so yeah, slightly ridiculous, winsome, very enduring story for
1: little kids. So it, it, are you, are you describing yourself? <laughs> I would love to be that.
0: <laughs> I would love to come across to people like the way Straganona comes across to kids you know just kind of delightful whimsical sort of like zany it's sort of like what's going on um but very you know you want to keep reading you're just like let's read it again let's read it again Um, that is
1: awesome that's probably the best description i've ever had that that is awesome all right here we go yeah you said you grew up in new jersey and now you're in california but like anybody we all have different Experiences with people that are different than us, no matter where we are. So, what is one of your most vivid, awkward, or funny cross-cultural experiences? Ooh, uh, huh!
0: Vivid, awkward, or funny cross-cultural experiences. Um. Okay. So, we'll go with awkward okay. and vivid. Um, so, um, when we moved to California, um, we um, we moved to a, a work at a university or a college that happens to be in a fairly wealthy neighborhood. Um, Got it. We live in faculty housing, um, and um, but our kids were going to the, the, you know, local daycare and preschool and things like that. So we're just trying to get to know the other parents as we just moved here and all the usual small talk when you're just dropping off your kids. Right. What would you do over the weekend? So forth. And so I remember very vividly one of the first conversations involved one of the dads starting to talk about how. Um, he had spent the weekend on his yacht, um, doing this or whatever. I once he said yacht, I was already like in another space. <laughs> I, was, I was a bit like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to say because uh, I've never been on a yacht. Never mind, own a yacht to know what it's like to go out on your yacht, you know. So it was it was a moment of like, I'm not in Kansas. I'm not anywhere I've ever been before with people I've ever been with before. Um, So I I better come up with some good small talk is what I learned. (laughs) Um, I got to learn to drive this conversation because I don't know how to go with this one. (laughs) What did you do? I nodded politely and was like, great. Where did you go? I I can't remember. I think I was. I had to recover from the shock of where I was. And
1: you didn't try to make up your own yacht story. Well, I was no no
0: no. I'm terrible <laughs> at lying because I can never be That's consistent good. with whatever I lied about two seconds ago. I can't keep the story going. I keep on losing. I forget what I lied about earlier, and then I say something else. So oh,
1: okay. Uh, I think we've all had those kind of moments where you're like, oh, I'm shocked. I don't know what to say right now. I have zero idea. No, And I'm
0: I'm nowhere where I've ever been. You know, like, I don't know this conversation. I don't know how to do this conversation.
1: Oh, that's funny. Okay, let's hear your story. So we know you grew up in Jersey, born and bred in Jersey. So tell us the story how this Jersey girl got to California and writes the book, Restless Devices.
0: Yeah, well. You know, I I grew up in New Jersey. Um, My parents had immigrated from Taiwan um, and landed in New Jersey, of all places. Um, Grew up going to what I've recently learned is called a Chinese Baptist church. I didn't know that was a term, but I just heard someone on a podcast describe it that way. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what my experience was. Chinese Mm -hmm. Baptist church, ethnic uh, immigrant community. Um, and, um, went to school in Connecticut, um, in college, but once I left for college, I kind of never went back to New Jersey. I was kind of ready to kind of get out. Leave New Jersey. I get Get it get out into the world, meet other people, went to college, joined in a varsity, um, Hmm. and found that to be just really, um, just a, a really helpful and loving community for me at that time um, that helped me grow in my faith. And, um, and what was interesting about my time in college was that because of the church background I had, um, my faith and um, my academics were completely kind of bifurcated worlds, you know, like I went to <laughs> school. And my, you know, I did the school thing, and then there was like the faith thing, the piety. It was just like Mm. a very binary, dualistic existence until I met a grad student who had who had actually gone to. I think he he did his undergrad at Calvin, Um, and we we got we had been going to the same church, and he started explaining to me this idea of the life of the mind, you know, Mm. and how that was something that could be. Um ex- pursued as a mode of faithfulness that, that Christians could actually do this. Or you could take your classes and think about your classes as a Christian, not in a defensive way, right? Which mm-hmm. is what I had grown up with, which is sort of like there's the world, there's the dangerous secular world out there that's gonna corrupt you, right? Always defense, defense. But it was this very, you know, what I came to realize was a fairly reformed perspective, right, on on the life of the mind and the lordship of everything. Right. Um, mm. And so that didn't, that conversation didn't happen until fairly late in my college years. So I really felt like I was a late bloomer, you know, like by junior and senior year, I was like, wait, I can actually bring this stuff together. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Right. And so by the time I graduated, I was really hungry, actually. Like I kind of wished I, I had sort of wasted my years in college, my classes at least you know, relationally, it was it was very um, fruitful and, and rich. Um, but the, the intellectual life just I had just started. Um, and so I knew when I left college that I, I wanted to go to grad school. Um, and um, I spent a year teaching at an all girls private school right out of college, um, teaching American history and. Um, and um, that's actually where some of my thinking about technology started. And I could talk about that later. Um, but uh, I ended up going to Labrie Fellowship um, in Southborough, Massachusetts.
1: <laughs> I love Labrie. So,
0: yeah. Um, for a semester, um, had read a little Francis Schaeffer and was like, OK, I got to check this place out. Went there so rich, so awesome, such great people that helped me hone and figure out, okay, so you want to go to grad school? What do you want to go do? Um, Read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death for the first time while I was there. Was blown away. Was like, wow, there's people like writing about media, you know, because I'd started thinking about media. Um, it was, this going to date me too. uh, it was the year that U2 was doing their Octune baby, uh, tour. Um, yes. and so, um, there's a lot of stuff about media and reality in that tours theme. Um, and so I was just all in like thinking about the impact of media and the way it shapes how we think and our experience of reality. And, um, so Anyway, I started applying to grad schools. Um, ended up going to Virginia. Uh, well, actually, there was a detour. I, I had a one-year stint at Northwestern. Won't go into all those details. Did a com studies. It was one of those, you know, times. A stint. In life, he described yeah, it a stint. Northwestern
1: as described as prison.
0: <laughs> no, well, not like that. It was more like I just wasn't there. Um, well, I got there and I realized I was in the wrong place, basically. Got it.
1: Okay, been there, done that. Yeah. And
0: so, <laughs> but it was it was great, like for what it was. You know, um, I was in a com studies communication studies program. Realized I was in really not in the right program for what I was interested in, um, and that was my bad. Like I did not do the proper research, um, and to to know what I was really getting into. So anyway, I redirected. Um, And ended up at Virginia studying sociology um, with James Hunter. And so, um, and that was the perfect place for a lot of different reasons. But what sociology gave me, you know, even though it wasn't directly about media or communication, which is the topic I was interested in, it was the kind of place that was equipping me with language and conceptual Mm. framework for thinking about community and identity and thinking about, well, what is it that shapes our conceptions or the meanings that we attribute to those experiences and and concepts? It kind of equipped me with that part, right. Of the infrastructure, which is what I realized I wanted. That was what I really Mm. wanted. And then I could kind of do my own work on the technology and media stuff and reading to, to kind of piece together, um, you know, the, the kind of education I was looking for. And so, uh, my husband's also an academic, he's a philosopher. Um, and so when we- I bet those are
1: some really fun conversations.
0: Yeah. All the time. Yes. (laughs) And we talk sociology and philosophy 24 seven, of course. Right. Um, he, he, in his armchair with pipe and I don't know what the, the sociologist does. Um, but um, yeah, so when we came out of grad school, like a lot of other um, academic couples, we we had the, the two body problem, as they call it, right, mm. um, of finding a job, jobs where we could both still be together. Um, so we ended up in Louisiana, of all places, which was not a place I ever thought I would end up in as a Jersey girl from the 1980s. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, We went to Louisiana State University and Mm. those were our first jobs. I actually taught at their mass communication journalism school for seven years, which was actually, you know, I had to retool because it wasn't something I was familiar with being in a professional school setting, but it was an amazing time to be there Mm. because it was sort of right in the. The what are they? The 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 aughts, as the English say, the 2000s, right? Um, The late 2000s, right when all the major media companies, advertising, PR, everyone was realizing we're going digital here, like Mm. we're going digital big time. And social media platforms were really kind of having their day and competing. Right, against all these traditional media institutions. And so it was an incredible time to be in a place with professionals, people who understood the industry, who were all kind of grappling with this huge shift in their institutional practices, in their strategies, in all the different um, sorts of deliverables that they were used to producing. They had to figure out how, you know, how are we going to? you know, set up a paywall. How are we going to get, you know, like, how do we make money putting out information? So anyway, it was phenomenal. Um, Time to be there. Um, We ended up loving, you know, being in South, Southern Louisiana. It's just like, it's a place. It's a real place, you know, Um, in all the ways that Wendell Berry and everyone else who cares about place would say, it's true people, true culture with all of its, Brokenness and mm. dysfunctions, but a true place um, and um, and then uh, we had the opportunity to come out here to to Westmont. Um, it was an idea that my husband and I were always thinking about like we didn't go to a Christian college in our mm. um, experience we had never worked at any sort of Christian institutions before, but we had always Wondered what it would be like to teach in a place where we could actually bring our faith um, with us instead of setting it aside um, in the classroom and even in our work. So uh, we've been out here. This is our ninth year. um, And, yeah, it's been an experience. It's been wonderful. It's been, um, you know, I couldn't have written this book without being in a place like this that's so supportive um, of, of the kind of work, um, that I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the journey.
1: That is a journey. It, 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 how many kids do you have?
0: Oh yeah. Two kids. Um, okay. sixth grade, 12th grade.
1: So you um, are, I, I think children, any, anyone who is a parent of kids in this era hmm. are having to face this dilemma of the devices all the time. Uh, That's what my kids are, always screens. We've had to set aside a gathering time where there are no screens allowed. We just set it aside. And a lot of that's because because of some of the things that I've heard you talk about, Mm -hmm. um, of having that sacred conversation or sacred place of rest and Mm -hmm. using those terminologies, which actually leads as a great segue into your book. Into the book, Restless Devices. And I I have to say that I was tremendously excited when this book came out. Because I, as I told you in the pre-show walkthrough, I heard you on the Center for Pastor Theologians podcast. And Mm -hmm. I thought, I have to meet this woman. And then this book came out a couple of years or a year or two after that. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then this book came along. And even the title catches me. Because it's so descriptive of where we're at. Talk about the book for a bit. What was the impetus behind it? And what made you want to write it?
0: Mm. Yeah, so uh, um, I've kind of been thinking about the ways that our digital practices shape um, our relationships and our experiences of community for a while. And I've been thankful Um, That for several years, I've actually had the chance to talk to different churches and um, faculty groups at different universities um, on this topic. And one of the things that always struck me and the best parts of those experiences has always been the Q&A and the time after the talk Mm -hmm. when people come up and they, you know, talk about whatever's on their mind. Um, and hearing the stories of what they're kind of wrestling with or what they're frustrated about. And um, through all those experiences of listening to people's questions and, and their stories and experiences, what really struck me was that everyone just felt stuck like, mm. and tired. Like, I don't know what to do, <laughs> right? Like, I don't like this. But I've got to do this because of my job, or I don't like this, but I've got to do this um, because of uh my situation. Um, my kids are in this situation, I don't know what to do, you know, whether they're young kids or old kids. Um, there's always just this sense of of um I would say a, a bit of despair, of dislike. Yeah, you know, like we're in this situation. Uh, my kids are raised. I wish I could have raised them differently. I regret it. You know, um, I, I'm in this job situation that requires this of me. I don't know how to get out of it. Right. Um, and so it, it really struck me that it was just such a deep need for mm-hmm. um, some tools, some equipping that was hopeful and realistic for people, you know, that wouldn't require them to quit their jobs, that wouldn't <laughs> require that, right? It's just sort of like we can't just throw it all out, you know, yeah. even though there's some days when we'd like to just throw it all out. Um, but we can't. And um, there's lots of good that comes with our digital as well. Um, and so what what could it look like? And so, I, you know, I think I – also was fairly convinced that sociology had good things, had, had was a lens that would offer some insight mm-hmm. that would be helpful to people, but that um, what was also needed, um, at least from my own searching for help in thinking about it, all these matters myself, is that there, there needed to be a little bit of theologically informed work as well, mm-hmm. right? That there just wasn't enough. There's been a lot of great, I think, interesting, helpful conversations that have been kind of what I would call like a little more abstract level of like philosophy or theology of technology, you know, which is super helpful, I think. Um, but like hard to like bring all the way down to like our mm. daily lives. And um, and, and and unless you want to sit around reading philosophy and theology of technology, it's probably not going to get to like <laughs> normal people, right? Um, so I wanted to write something that would kind of bring the two together, the sociology and the theology, um, in a way that could um, really ignite people's imaginations. You know, I just mm. feel like I know when I get stuck... Um. I always feel like I must not be seeing, like, to me, I feel like I get stuck when I'm not seeing something like there's something I'm not capable of imagining, which is what's creating the stuckness, you know? Um, And so the book is very much um, geared in hopes of expanding people's imaginations, right. Uh, Beyond what they see around them Um, and kind of just kind of evoking other ways of of seeing and imagining for them.
1: We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the new living translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Well, this is the strength of the book. Everything you just mentioned, I, I felt I saw. I have a love for sociology, so I, I appreciate the research. And then, of course, theology is my, my total background. And then you brought a practicality. I, I grew up around the Amish people. My mm. hometown is the oldest and largest se- settlement of Amish in Illinois. Yeah. So technology was always something where you went, I can live without it in that mm. I see it every day. Although it's funny to me that when I go back to my hometown, there are Amish people with cell phones, which is another (laughs) whole other layer to this, but there is this, this, I think a desire to return to a simpler time where the world was less complex, but you recognize that we're in it, whether we want to be or not, our world has become more technologically dependent, not less. And with the pandemic, Mm-hmm. Children at home, being on mm-hmm. computers, screens, they are a part of our daily life. Mm-hmm. What I really thoroughly enjoyed though were the practical hints. And you you bring that out at the end of a chapter where you bring out the the Freedom Project. Mm-hmm. Describe what the Freedom Project is for us so we might know a bit more about it. And why did you include that in the book?
0: Hmm. Um, yeah. So the Freedom Project um is a set of experiments. Um that are sequenced to try to encourage readers to try new things um, mm-hmm. in order to discover if there might be just some other way of of living into your day, you know, some small adjustment. Um, it's called the Freedom Project because I think we tend to um, think about technologies as this the, the means through which we can gain freedom, right? That's often what we're told, right? We can be free to express ourselves. We can be freed of the constraints of time and space and talk to people on the other side of the world, um, right? Uh, so there's there's all these kinds of freedoms that um, are marketed to us, right? And, and certainly it is the case um, that there are a lot of freedoms that are granted to us through technologies. But the Freedom Project is trying to turn our idea of freedom around and say, um, while there may be some freedoms that come with technologies, for many of us, our daily experience is we actually feel a fair bit of tyranny from our technologies. We feel that we are being driven by them, right? Like We feel driven to have to go through that inbox, right. And like read all those emails and respond. We have to keep up with the social media feed. We've got to keep up, right. We got to keep up the block. It's just, it's just 24 seven relentlessness. Right. And so the freedom that I'm interested in is actually, um, what kind of freedom can we experience, um, In relation to our technology, that is what kind of relationship can we have with our technologies where we don't feel enslaved by tyrannized by it, but we can use our technologies with freedom, right? And even experience freedom of self, I think, you know, we talk about our young people, right, Um, in our lives, it's like, this is a hard time to be growing up. Oh my gosh. You're on social media, right? I mean, there is no freedom in that space, right? Mm. Because you are looking at everyone else, they're looking at you every, and you are getting immediate reinforcement of whatever is appealing, not appealing, right? Um, And that is not freedom at all, right? Mm. And so, like, so the Freedom Project is, you know, how do we grow into people who can be free of the fear? of what other people are thinking, freedom to be who we truly are, right? Freedom to bring our weakness and our flaws to, to, you know, in front of someone else, trusting that they're still going to love us. Right. Mm. Um, That kind of freedom, right. Which I I believe is the freedom that a life of following Jesus, you know, is, 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 is what we, long for and what is promised, right? That is the freedom of the gospel. And so that's the freedom that we're looking for. Um, So the Freedom Project lays out, it starts with a digital fast, right? Try to go 24 hours without technology, um, which is kind of crazy. It's sort of like jump into the deep end of the pool. Um, But the point of these exercises and experiments is not about success or failure. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's not like, hey, you got to lose 15 pounds right? It's more like, hey, let's see what happens when you try, right? Just to find out, it's just to find out a little bit, like how painful is it? How awesome is it? How, you know, like, what is it that happens when you try one of these experiments, right? So um, I ended up putting the Freedom Project in the book, Um in large part from my experiences of giving talks is that, you know, as, as an academic, I can nerd out on all the sociology and theology <laughs> and be completely satiated. Right. I'm just, I'm pleased as punch, just doing the abstract stuff and the data. Um, But I realized pretty quickly um, and my editors helped me realize too, you know, like regular people just want, they need, like, they want practical things yeah, in their life. Practical
1: steps. What do, do I do with it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and the other thing was, and I mentioned this in the book, is it was actually a project that I started doing in my classes. Um, mm-hmm. I teach a class on Internet Society, and I walk my students through the same um, series of experiments. And it's just been really gratifying and, and fun, even listening to the students and watching mm-hmm. them go through the process and and kind of just slowly walk into a kind of um asking new questions about their relationship with technology that that are fruitful, right? And it's not to say that every student changes their life or, or you know, makes major changes in the way they use their digital um, devices, but it just, it's a little space that gives them an opportunity to try something else, try something different, like, you know, driving without listening to any music or anything you know, for 15 minutes and see how that goes. Right. So there's little types of experiments like that that are in the project.
1: I, I, I don't want to praise the book too much. <laughs> I have to be a little, oh, go critical. ahead. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I I, I'm so serious though. I, everything that you said, I, I, my mind was just racing just as you were talking and you were talking about how we've become tethered and and you and I are Mm in the age where we remember that the kitchen phone had the long cord and you just, you know, you you carry it around and you're like, I just wish it was disconnected. And I feel like the more that we become our technology in many ways, it's become wireless or digital, you know, it's actually become more connected to us, Mm -hmm. not less. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I, I think it is affecting how we see and understand and how we live out our faith. And I've seen so many churches just adapt the newest technology, thinking that they're remaining relevant to the people, but it's communicating a message in and of itself. You and I both read Postman, which is a phenomenal book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, because the means has become a message in itself that when not carefully done, it actually shapes our faith and it shapes our relationships. And that's what I love about your book. That's why I, I, I'm I kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over it, but... Um, <laughs> is how it, how are our devices though just trying to bring in everybody in that's not read the book mm-hmm. how is it shaping our faith hmm.
0: yeah so um
1: and feel free to nerd out nerd yeah. out let's nerd out together <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think through where to start. Um, There's so much
1: I know. I gave you a loaded question. There's so much yeah. to go any direction. Pick one and we'll you know, choose your own adventure.
0: Yeah, I think one, one way in is to, is to think about um, what kind of story our digital practices and our digital devices are telling us. That is, um, when I'm on social media, what kind of story am I living into? when I am posting and, um, thinking about what other people are, are thinking about me. And I think our digital practices tell us, you know, when you're, when you're on social media, when you're keeping up with your emails, we get a story about how life is about productivity, right? Like making sure I have my inbox at, at zero, Right. We get a story about how we need to present ourselves in a way that is um, quantifiably affirming, right? That shows you, shows not just you, but everyone else how popular you are, right? How awesome everybody thought that picture that you posted was. Um, it tells why, us a why story. am I feeling
1: conviction right now? Why <laughs> am I feeling conviction in all of this? You're making me convicted. Well, it's the story. I mean, it's the story we live uh, in in a
0: society, right? Or like even when you're at that incredible sunset, we're told that we've got to take it as an object and post it, right? That that's actually what we're supposed to do in that moment, right? That that's like the meaningful thing to do rather than just be there right taking it in yourself so there's a story right that all these practices are are guiding us nudging us pushing us towards and it's a story that ultimately i think is about scarcity we don't have enough time we need more people to affirm us we've got to capture everything right put put it on online right and then when you think about what the christian faith story is in some ways it's the exact opposite on all of those fronts right the christian faith is a story of abundance even when it looks like there's only two fish and a couple loaves right <laughs> right it's a it's a story about how um the one who has no productivity. The the person that looks useless is actually Mm. of incredible worth, right? Um, It's a story about how our identity and sense of being is not dependent on what our society or what um, these uh, other people think of us, but our identity is rooted in the love that God has for us, right? Mm. Um, so if we just think, you know, and I, so I'm taking, I'm taking your cue here. I'm nerding out, right? This is, fairly, I, this is fairly, I, abstract.
1: Actually, right? I feel like I'm in a counseling session. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I just want to lay back and talk about my youth and how many things have affected me in my life. Because you're, I feel like you are crawling around in so many people's heads, and how? Because I, I don't think people think about that. I don't think we stop. And think about why we do what we do, we just do. And you're, you're calling us to stop and reflect on why do we feel like we need to do that? What's that, that pressure internally, mm-hmm. that vacuum that we're trying to meet God in? Mm-hmm. Or we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, G.K. Chesterton, when he said, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's really looking for God. In many ways, it's the equivalent of when I go online, yeah. I'm looking for something. And I'm trying to say something, get an affirmation, but no, keep nerding out. This is awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, what you're saying right now about Chesterton, it's, it's about um, appetites. Right. And, and this is where I, I really leaned into the work of Jamie Smiths from desiring the kingdom and you are what you love, mm-hmm. where he, he presents this Augustinian view of, human beings as, as being creatures of appetite, right? And that um, in the end of the day, our appetites are for God, right? Um, but we will often look everywhere else um, but, right? Um, and, and I think so many of our digital practices and routines are, are exactly that, exactly as you said, we are searching for affirmation, we are searching for meaning, and sense of accomplishment. Um, and uh, as I write in the book, in the end of the day, we're, we're, we're looking for connection with other people, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we want to belong and we want to experience um, communion, right, is the word. Um, but so often our technologies, and I think so many of us feel it, right? Like it doesn't get us all the way there. It doesn't get us the communion we're actually searching for with other people and certainly not with God. And so um one of the, I think the the larger concerns I have about um, our digital practices is just the pervasiveness of it, right? The sort of not just that it's 24 seven and there's, you know, social media feeds and emails calling to us all the time, but even when we're not at our laptops, even when we're not on our devices, even when we're not listening to a podcast, right? Like we might just be out walking or something, right? I know it's too cold for a lot of people to be walking anywhere, um, <laughs> but even when we're not on our devices, right? Like so much of our consciousness has actually become dedicated to thinking about what is happening in the digital and and preoccupied that way um in such a way that i would argue is you know it, it's um i think about the christian contemplative tradition right and mm-hmm. how there's always been a critique you know you didn't need technologies like what we have today for people to experience noise in their heads right um but that we now you know even though he, all of humanity has surely struggled with the noise in their minds. Right. Um, Now we are living in a time where it is structurally all the more difficult to to create design intentionally um, carve out space right in our lives to create space for God to speak into to even hear our own thoughts, right? Um and because so many of us and I you know all of these things that I'm saying and the only reason why I could write any of this is cuz I experience every single thing, you know, every <laughs> single piece of it, right? Yeah. Like I'm yeah. right? That's the only reason I can say these things is cuz like I I know, like I I feel every bit of it, right? Um is uh you know, we're feeling stress, we're feeling anxiety. It's like, I don't want to stop and slow down because I'm afraid of what I'm going to hear if I turn everything off, right? It's scary, right? And so I get it, you know? And, And But at the same time, it's like, but the very answer, right? The answer is in the stillness, is in the silence that will allow the presence of God to actually become clear to us, right? Like like the presence of God is around, is here already. Like, it's not like we need to summon God, right? To us. It's like, no, the presence of God is here. We're just kind of filling ourselves with all these other things that we're not even noticing it most of the time. And I think that's the part of our discipleship that I feel most um, burdened by, I think or the church today is how do we um, I I think with the way that our society is so digitally saturated, I actually think that the contemplative tradition and um, yeah, what the contemplative tradition has, has, has offered to the church through the ages is precisely like the, the piece of the wider Christian heritage that might be the most salient for us right now. Um, because that's, that's where we're really aching. You know, we just do not live lives that are conducive to that type of, um, attending, um, expectancy. Um, I write about the heart of having a heart of expectancy, um, to God, Speaking to us um, throughout the day. When we're on social media, we 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 learn we get trained to perform, right? We know mm-hmm. what what it takes to get the right kind of attention, <laughs> um, and so we we come we all of our communication is encouraged to become a kind of broadcasting rather than actual relational communication with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it's it's a necessity. In that, in that space. Um, and we also come to uh, reify, is the term um, that, that I use um, from Georg Lukacs. We reify each other. That is, we start to see each other as things, right? Rather than, this is a little like Martin Buber's, you know, I and thou. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, we, we treat each other as objects, Right, um, that need to be either coerced, um, or persuaded to like our our posts, or we, um, want to. Uh, we just gotta, you know. I think about all the emails that I get. You know, I'm I'm so frustrated because within an hour I get fifty, and so now I'm just not even paying attention. Like, uh, you know, I'm not treating people as people. I'm just like trying to get these emails done, mm-hmm. right. Um, and so we, we kind of reduce each other to tasks, right, that need to be done. Um, and then finally, I talk about, um, and this is to one of the points you just made earlier, I think what social media does um, in the most tragic way is that it encourages us to see it actually the most important part of our um, the experience or day, right? Like I think a lot of us know what it's like to um, when you get the notification. When you have that experience, where you get the notification, and it doesn't matter what's happening around you, you just you feel like that's the most important thing to check, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, one of the thing i one of the things that social media encourages in us is to see whatever else is happening around us Mm -hmm. as like, it's just, it's just something that's, that can be interrupted, right. That, that family member that's talking to you, right. Comes second to Mm. that notification about someone commenting on your post. Right. Um, And so it's, it's that um, the, the, the aspect of industrialization that suggests there are things, people, that are considered waste in mm. an experience uh, or in a pursuit of efficiency and productivity, right? Like, I just got to write this email, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I can't remember right now. Like, I got to do this. It's that urgency that we often feel. Um and you know, all it, it's all of these things, right? The quantification, the performance, the reification, it all kind of comes together to um, shape the way that we navigate our relationships, right? And 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 and, and shapes what we think is important and valuable, um, mm-hmm. shapes how we think about how we ought, ought to shape our even our own identities right so many of us I mean so many of my students talk about how um, they they don't want to interrupt when someone else is doing something you know and I feel this way too very often like I don't want to interrupt someone gets a notification oh no no no, that must be more important right so there's a way in which we ourselves even defer. Be like, oh, no, 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 um, it's not even so much that someone else is more important, but it's, it's tending to the social media mm-hmm. that is more important, right? Um, and I think that's where um, there are really strange dynamics um, that are trained in us when social media becomes the um, most formative or, or most frequent space in which we interact with each other and engage the world. Um, and so I think all this to say, you know, there's nothing, it's not like being on social media is in and it of itself, right? Like a sinful thing or an evil thing. It's more that we need to awaken, be awakened to its formative powers, right? Mm. Um, and the ways that it is telling us a story about what it means to be a good human being, what it means to be a good friend, what it means to be a good employee, right? It is is constantly shaping that. And unless we have some sort of counter narrative about what those things are, right? That we are intentionally living into, it's just easy to kind of just go the way, right? Of these structural um, habits and routines.
1: There is so much that we talked about today. I mean, we, we talked about how our technology is actually forming us and how we do need to recover personhood. We do need to rethink our digital habits. And what all of these different companies have known all along is that we are being shaped. They are shaping us and it's time to fight back. Because we, as Christians, have the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead within us. And that means we have self-control and we can fight back against the soft tyrant of our digital technology. I would encourage you to get her book and experiment with some of the practices that she suggests I will lay them out for you just in case you don't have the money to get the book. She has them in four stages. Allow me to list them really quick. Stage one is a digital media fast. Two, digital stock taking. I mean, you take really a look about how much this influences your life and what you need to do about it. Three secular liturgy and counter liturgy and and what she means by that is this is that there is a way that the world is trying to form us and we have to find ways to counter form us i don't want to elaborate any further but i would encourage you to check back next week if you're not on a digital fast and listen in as we elaborate on a couple of these i have to say that I do love the fact that she named it the Freedom Project. That's the, the practice. It's, it's a practice in freedom because we do need freedom and we need to imagine an alternative future where we do not allow our technology to rule over us. Instead, we need to regulate it. We need to make sure that, we, that it's not shaping us. Instead, it's serving us. These are just some of the suggestions that she lays out in the book. So I would heavily encourage you to get it. I want to thank InnerVarsity for providing us with a copy. And I want to thank you for listening. Check out more of our content on Facebook or Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Rate it, share it with others, and partner with us to water faith around the world. You are a watering warrior just by the fact that you're listening to this program. Now, go water your world. And join us next week as Felicia and I continue our conversation on restless devices. You'll be glad that you did. Lastly, and certainly not least, I want to thank our team of Donovan, Melissa, Kevin, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody.